0: Hundreds when a man from Chicago named D.L. Moody was poised to become a great evangelist that would touch the world for Christ. He was at a series of meetings in London, England. And he heard an evangelist by the name of Henry Varley preaching that day. And Henry Varley made this statement, the world has yet to see what God can do Through a man who is totally yielded to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally yielded to him. D.L. Moody was captivated by these words. And he resolved, by the grace of God, I will be that man. We know the rest of the story. D.L. Moody was used mightily of God, an instrument in God's hands to see thousands swept into the kingdom. So keeping that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. I want to talk to you this morning about a consecrated life. A consecrated life. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. My original intention was to finish chapter 18 this morning. But I was in my study this past week, and there's just a little um, transition passage. I just couldn't get past it and began to kind of study and take notes. And I had an entire sermon on the transition passage. So we're not going to make it to the end of chapter 18 this morning. But I think there's a word here from God for us today. Acts chapter 18, verse 18, the Bible says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. Now that phrase, he went up, speaks of him going to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, his home church, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our attention, our affection, and our allegiance. And we, Lord, by your grace, seek to to draw near to you in these moments. We ask you to manifest your presence. We ask you to move in such a way that we would leave today knowing we have met with the living God. And so, Lord, as your word goes forth, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would accompany the preaching of your word. I pray for the anointing of the Spirit in my life. I pray for the anointing of the Spirit in the hearers' lives, that our eyes might be open, that we might see the truth of Scripture and have the desire, the wherewithal to live according to them so that you get glory from our lives. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. We're grateful today for Jesus the author, and the finisher of our faith. And we lift high the matchless name of Christ. And Lord, we lift up this prayer to you in his name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Our passage this morning is interesting because it's, it's a transition passage that tells us what happened between Paul's extended ministry in Corinth and Ephesus. You know, he spent a year and six months in Corinth. We studied that last week. Uh, Really spent a lot of time and focus and energy ministering in that city. And and we're going to see a little bit later on as we study Acts that he spent a a great amount of time in Ephesus as well. Two great strategic cities. But the passage we just read describes what happened between Corinth and Ephesus. Ephesus. And it's very interesting to see what happened because really what we see here in this transition passage is we see the end of the uh, second missionary journey. He leaves Corinth. He goes over to Jerusalem, spends some time with the church, goes back to his home church of Antioch to have another global impact conference to report to them about all that God had been doing during his missionary travels. And that's the end of his second missionary journey. Then he leaves Antioch again traveling through Asia back towards Ephesus, and that's the beginning of his third missionary journey. So even though we just read a small number of passages, there's a lot lot that happens here in this transitional uh, text. And what I want to focus in on is the habit we see in Paul's life of consecration. Uh, Paul lived a consecrated life life. And as I studied this this past week, and I thought about my own life, I thought about our church, I was thinking, what would that look like in, in our lives? What would that look like in our church? What does it mean to have a consecrated life? Well, we're going to study Paul's example and look at some other texts and think together deeply about consecration. So let's begin, if you look there in your notes, with a definition of consecration. A definition of consecration. What, do that, what do I mean? It's a, a religious term, right? We hear that term in religious circles. What, what do we mean when we say that we want to be consecrated or have a consecrated life? What, what is consecration? Well, I have a little definition there for you. The word consecrate means literally to set apart as sacred. It's the same uh, Greek word that we sometimes translate uh, sanctification or, or, or to sanctify. It means to be set apart to God. Consecration is to be set apart, watch this, from sin. You want to distance yourself from sin and worldliness. And it means to set yourself apart to God. That's what it means. Consecration is to be set apart from sin and to God. It's a desire to be closer to God and farther away from worldliness. Now, vows in these days, Old Testament days, New Testament days, vows were often made as acts of consecration which is I I believe what's at play here in Acts chapter 18. Look what it says in verse 18. After this, after his time in Corinth, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him Priscilla and Aquila. Remember last week we looked at Priscilla and Aquila. They modeled a marriage on mission. They were serving the Lord and Paul took them with him as he went to Ephesus and it says at century on their way to Ephesus he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. That's just a little phrase in our Bibles, but there's a lot of impact as we study that phrase. He cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Uh, Paul here had, had had entered into a vow with God as an act of consecration to separate himself from sin and to God. And the cutting of hair uh, probably refers to to a voluntary vow that could be made that we find in Numbers chapter 6 called the Nazarite vow. Have you ever heard the phrase the Nazarite vow? That's probably what this phrase refers to when it says he cut his hair. Uh, it, almost certain this cutting of hair refers to that Nazarite vow in number 6. Now, the Nazarite vow involved abstinence from, from drinking wine, and from cutting one's hair for a period of time. At the end of that period of time, that vow to God, that focus on God, uh, the hair was cut and then burned along with other sacrifices as a symbol of self-offering to God. So scholars believe that he cut his hair and his goal was then to go to Jerusalem. Remember he landed at Caesarea, went up to Jerusalem to meet with the church, to go to the temple and offer his hair to to burn it as an offering to God, to, to... um, to communicate that he had uh, finished a Nazarite vow. Now, there's a good question that we must ask here. Why, Paul, a new covenant Christian who knew that the law was not necessary to be right with God, why did he dig back into the Old Testament and lift this vow and practice it as a Christian? Well, I believe David Peterson has a good answer to that. He writes Paul voluntarily continued certain Jewish practices because he did not see them to be inconsistent with his new status in Christ. Making a vow and shaving the head when it was completed was a way of demonstrating his trust in God and showing loyalty to the traditions of Israel without compromising his gospel message. Perhaps such gestures allowed Paul to talk more freely with fellow Jews about the gospel. And so him performing a vow that was Uh, put forth as something someone could voluntarily enter into in number six is not compromising the gospel of Christ. It's simply a Jewish custom that God set forth that would allow him to express his desire to be consecrated, to, to, to separate himself from sin and to God. And by the way, I find it remarkable that Paul saw the need for this act of consecration, don't you? I mean, he was a missionary. He had suffered. He had been stoned. He had been beaten. He had been maligned. He had been mocked. He'd been run out of town. And we would say, hey, that's enough dedication, right? I mean, you're walking miles and miles and miles and preaching the gospel, uh, enduring personal insult, enduring personal harm. I mean, that's enough. That, that's, that's enough. That's enough commitment, Paul. We got you, okay? You're doing a good job. But isn't it interesting that Paul, the missionary, saw the need to enter into this vow as an expression of his desire to be even closer to God? Isn't that interesting? Now, just a word about vows in the Old Testament. Vows were to be voluntary. The Bible's very clear on that. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 and 22 speak of the the voluntary nature of vows. These weren't commandments by God. These were um, uh, patterns of vows of, of habit that God allowed people to put in place to express their consecration, to express their desire to be closer to him. And vows, once entered into, were to be kept. All over the Bible, we see how important it is that once you make a vow to God, you keep it. You don't enter into a vow lightly. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that you need to think seriously about making a vow before God because the Bible says it's better not to make a vow than it is to make a vow and not keep it. So vows were to be voluntary, vows were to be kept, and that's one of the ways that the Jews could express their desire to be closer to God. That's what's happening here in this passage. Now, that's the, the, the definition of, of consecration. But what's the purpose? I mean, why would Paul do this? Why should we think about consecration? I mean, what is the overall purpose of consecration? Well, number one to give God what he deserves, our lives. God, who in his grace has provided a way for us to be saved, he sent his only son to this earth. And Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a perfect life and went to the cross for you and for me. He took all of our sin on himself. On the cross, he was, he was enduring the wrath of God in our place. He was taking our punishment for us. He died for our sins. He was buried and early on the third day. He rose from the grave. And because he loves us, he offers us this free gift of eternal life. As we sang earlier, oh, how he loves us. And when we think about his love for us, when we think about his amazing grace, when we think about his magnificent mercy, when we think about all that he's done for us, don't you think he deserves our all. He deserves our lives. And so consecration is a way for us to say to God, God, I want you to have everything. I want you to have every part of me. I don't want to play religion. I don't want to play church. I don't want to go through the motions. I want you to have my entire life. Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we'll look at a little bit later on. Paul mentions After he's gone through the glories of the gospel in Romans chapters 1 through 11, he says, Therefore, brothers, according to the mercies of God, I beseech you, I urge you, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That you give God your life. That's your your response to all that he's done for you in view of his mercy. Give him your life. And and consecration is a way to give God what he deserves our life. Uh, I read this quote from Oswald Chambers Uh, He's well known as having written the, the famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. I just began a biography about Oswald Chambers titled Abandoned to God. I like that title. And here's a quote from Oswald Chambers. Beware of stopping anywhere short of total surrender to God. Most of us have only a vision of what this really means, but have never truly experienced it. We talk about surrender We sing, I surrender all. We know God deserves our lives, but how many of us have truly given the Lord everything? How many of us have truly surrendered all? How many of us have lived in this this habitual practice of consecration like Paul did? One of the purposes of consecration is to give God what he deserves, our lives. Another purpose of consecration is this. To distance ourselves from a particular pattern or practice of sin. Turn over with me to Romans. It's the next book after Acts. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. What it says in verse 12. Now the context here is... Paul's writing, hey, now that you're in Christ, your old self has died, you've been raised to walk in resurrection power, therefore your life ought to look different. Look what he says in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Listen to this. Do not present your members as sin to sin. As instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves, consecrate yourselves, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Here's what he's saying. Now that you've been transformed, now that you have new life in Christ, now that you've been made alive, now that you are indwelt by resurrection power, don't take your, your life, don't take the members of your body and present them to sin. Take your life and present it to God. Put it in God's hands say, God, you use my life. And so consecration is a way for us to say, you know what? I've got a, a pattern of sin in my life or a habit of sin in my life or some things I'm dabbling with that are worldly and ungodly and are affecting me. And so I want to I distance myself from that sin. And so consecration is a way to put distance between you and that sin, to not present your body to that sin, but to present your body to God. Here's another reason we see consecration in the Bible To seek God's strength for effective service. It's interesting that some of the people that God used mightily uh, were put under uh, the Nazarite vow even before they were born. Uh, Samson is an uh, an example of this. He was to be a Nazarite. Remember the whole cutting of hair thing? Remember when he had his hair cut, he lost his power. So the Nazarite vow was meant to show his consecration to God so that he could live with power and be a judge to deliver Israel from bondage to their enemies. He was meant to be used by God, so he was to be a Nazarite, effective strength for service. And, and then John the Baptist was under the Nazarite vow. He was the forerunner for Christ. He was out there in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. When Jesus comes up, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was wearing camel skins and eating locusts and wild honey. And he was a mighty servant of God living under the Nazarite vow. And so we extrapolate from that, that one of the reasons behind the Nazarite vow is thats that, is that People are seeking God's strength so that they can serve him effectively. Fanny Crosby wrote an old hymn titled, I Am Thine, O Lord. And there's a verse in there that speaks to this kind of consecration. She writes, Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. She's talking in that hymn about Consecration for service. Consecration set apart to God to get his strength to serve him effectively for his glory. There's another reason that we see consecration in God's word. And it is to express gratitude for God's grace. A a, a setting apart from sin to God just as a way to say thank you God for all that you've done for me. Now look back with me in Acts 18. 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria within Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. So he cut his hair after he left Corinth. Now, some scholars believe that he is uh, is finishing a vow that he made uh, back in uh, uh, Corinth because look what it says uh, back in verse 9. The Lord said to Paul, One night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months in teaching the word of God among them. Some scholars believe that when God said, hey, you keep preaching, I'll protect you. At that moment, he entered into a vow to say, God, I'm going to consecrate myself to you. You're watching over me. I'm going to consecrate myself to you. When he left Corinth and God had shown his protection for a year and six months, the vow comes to an end. So some believe that this vow was a way for Paul to say, God, I'm grateful for your protection. I'm grateful for your oversight. I'm grateful that you're watching me. I'm grateful for your grace. And so a valid reason for consecration is to just, just say, God, thank you for all that you have done for me. So we've talked about the, the definition of consecration and the purpose of consecration. But here's what I began to ask myself in my study this past week. Well, what would this look like in my life? What would consecration look like? And, and what would consecration look like in the lives of the members at Longview Point? I mean, how do we live a consecrated life? Do we need to start letting our hair grow long? And, and I mean, what, what, what would consecration consist of for us? And I began to think through that and study God's word. And, and here's some conclusions I came to that I think you and I need to consider today. Number one, we think of consecration. We need to think about daily consecration. Daily consecration. We quoted Romans twelve one and two earlier that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And you say, "Wait, is that just a thing you do on Sunday mornings? Because that's you know that's when you sing your songs, there's sermons, and there's prayer, and all. So is that the time that I present my body as a living sacrifice? I mean, should it be an emotional?" Worship service once a week that I present my body uh, as a living sacrifice to God or, or maybe it's some emotional experience at some other point, a, a camp or a retreat or something like that. Are these talking, is Romans 12 talking about special occasions of consecration? I believe Romans 12 is talking about daily consecration. Here's why I believe that. Over in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, here's what Jesus said. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, listen, take up his cross daily and follow me. In other words, daily we should die to self. Daily we should say, it's not about me, it's about you. I, I want to I be separated from sin, I want to be separated for you, I want to be consecrated today so I can live a life that honors and glorifies you. Jesus said that death to self, surrender to Christ should happen Daily. And so as we are challenged by Paul's example of a consecrated life, you and I should think about what this looks like daily. Daily, daily, daily. We give God our lives daily. We say, I surrender all daily. We say, Lord, I need you daily. We say, fill me with your spirit. Daily. We say, I want to I want your kingdom to come. Your will be done. Daily, that should happen. And I believe this passage is a is a challenge to Daily consecration. Let me tell you one of the issues in the American church. We act differently on Mondays than we do on Sundays. Do you hear what I just said? Because we've reduced Christianity to a once a week thing. And God calls for our lives every single day. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And and so this passage speaks of or challenges us to daily consecration. But I also think we need to to just talk for a moment together about some special seasons of consecration. Paul certainly daily gave his life to the Lord. He, he, He daily surrendered all to him. But Paul also saw a need for a special season of of taking on a vow the the Nazirite vow we don't know what was going on in his life why exactly he was doing that but he saw the need for a special season of consecration so i believe it's appropriate for us to every day consecrate ourselves to god set apart from sin to god but we also need to think about perhaps maybe some special seasons to to focus more exclusively on consecration so what would that look like If you and I are seeking a consecrated life, what would that look like to live this kind of way? Well, let me give you some examples of special seasons of consecration. Number one, a vow. A vow. Take a vow. In Acts 18, Paul models for us that he was under a vow. He cut his hair for he finished up his vow. Probably number six, the Nazarite vow. And so it's appropriate for us to take a vow, to make a commitment to God for seasons of life. But keeping that in mind, turn with me to Ecclesiastes, Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Let me show you this. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let me show you what the Bible says about these vows. Let's start in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Now look in verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, in fulfilling it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And so the Bible says, be very careful... You need to be very calculating about entering into a vow before God. But it doesn't say you shouldn't do it. Paul models for us this is a legitimate way to express your desire to be closer to God, a vow. And so it doesn't say we shouldn't do it. It says we should be careful about it. We shouldn't be flipping about entering into a vow. We ought to give it a lot of thought. We ought to think about what it's going to look like, what the purpose is, what the timeline is. And then before God, when we enter into that vow, we want to, by his grace, fulfill that vow, whatever that might mean for our lives. A.G. Fernando says this, Handled discerningly and with imagination, vows could be a God-given resource to strengthen, resolve, and enable one to rise above, watch this, immediate circumstances, and to restore continuity to our lives, fractured by the pressures of a disorienting world. So Fernando's saying that, that vows can be a legitimate tool to kind of shake us from our lethargy, and to help us to, to rise above just being... Tossed to and fro with our circumstances, and to say, I'm making some definite steps in my life. I'm making a solemn vow before God that this is what my life is going to consist of. This is what my focus is going to be over this next period of time. And so, should we be careful about making vows? Yes. Should we be calculating? Yes. Do we need accountability? Yes. Does it mean we shouldn't enter into vows? No. Paul demonstrates that having a a, a time of or season of entering into a vow is legitimate for a New Testament Christian. And so a vow can be appropriate. I'm going to talk to you for a minute about Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson, beloved member of this church, he's now with Jesus. And um, I love Brother Bill for so many reasons. He was a good friend, he was a servant, and uh, always positive, always encouraging. I remember one time we were looking at building plans and expansion and all of that. I went over to uh, Mr. Bill, Ms. Tona's house, and I was talking to Mr. Bill, and he said, now listen, he said, listen, you don't have to get fancy for me. He said, I can sit on a milk crate. I'm fine. I, hey, it's all about Jesus. It's not about where we, where we worship, what we sit on. It's about Jesus. And I said, amen, Mr. Bill, like that. He was so encouraging, so encouraging. And Mr. Bill told me many times about a vow he had made years and years ago. He said he was at a men's meeting, and a man speaking at that meeting challenged the the people present to make a vow to read God's Word every day. Every day, read God's Word. And he would tell me, there were times he'd lay down at night, about to go to sleep, and God reminded him of the vow. And he'd get up, and he would read God's word. And guess what? His life reflected it. He was a man of God's word. When he passed away, Miss Tona showed me his Bible. I got to look through his Bible. Marked up everywhere. Underlined, highlighted, notes in the margin. He was a man of the book. He'll tell you, it all goes back to making that solemn vow before God. He'd tell me there are times I didn't want to read the Bible, but I made a vow. So every day, Mr. Bill read God's word. I'm not saying that's for you this morning, but I'm saying that's an example of a legitimate use of a vow before God to show that you desire him more. To show that you want to go to the next level In your Christian journey. He was the real deal. And he used a vow. And so a vow can be legitimate. A legitimate way to express your desire to be closer to God. Let me give you another example of a season of consecration. Fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer. Look what it says over in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. got several passages I could take you to, but look at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's burdened about his homeland. He's in captivity and exile. He hears about the condition of the walls around Jerusalem. Look what it says in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. A season of consecration. Lord, I I hear what's going on in Jerusalem and it burns my heart. I want to do something about it. I don't know what to do. And so God, I'm going to fast and pray and seek your face and say, my life is yours. I want to be closer to you as you show me what needs to happen next. Fasting and prayer. Fasting is simply, listen, denying yourself something you want. All right, don't fast from Brussels sprouts. That doesn't count. All right. Fasting is denying yourself something you want in order to focus more exclusively on God. Because when you, fo- when you fast from something you want, you know, food, uh, media consumption, whatever, caffeine, Cokes, whatever, when you fast from something you want, you'll feel it, won't you? And every time you feel that sense of loss, you're missing that thing in your life. It's a reminder to go to God. It's a reminder of how much you need God. Seasons of fasting and prayer. Listen to what John Piper writes. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite for God, and it can be awakened. I invite you to turn from the doling effects of food and the dangers of idolatry and to say with some simple fast, this much, oh God, I want you. Powerful. See, one of the problems, one of the reasons we don't desire consecration or a consecrated life is because our soul is stuffed with the world. trivial things that take our focus away from the one who loves us and gave his son for us and so a season of fasting and prayer can be a time for you to just consecrate your life to god and by the way why did i say fasting and prayer because fasting goes hand in hand with prayer when you see fasting in the bible often you see prayer right there with it hey listen you got more time on your hands right if you're fasting from food you're not gonna have spend the time you spend eating so spend that time doing what Praying. If you fast from TV, well, you don't have that time watching TV. Spend that time doing what? Praying. Fasting and prayer is a legitimate way for a season in your life to say, this much, oh God, I want you. I want to be farther away from sin and worldliness, and I want to be closer to you. Fasting and prayer. But there's another season, and I think this is really going to help some folks this morning. There's another season that we see in God's Word that is important for all of us and is a fresh start. It might look like a vow for a period of time, a vow to do something for the Lord or live in a certain way, maybe fasting and prayer. It may just mean for you there's a fresh start occurring in your life. Turn to Psalm 51. Remember David, a man after God's own heart? He committed adultery and then murdered to cover it up, right? I mean, he fell morally, And look what it says in Psalm 51 as he prays a prayer of repentance. Psalm 51, look what it says in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't let your Holy Spirit leave me to empower me to be a king. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, new season, fresh start. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 15. Open, uh, O oh Lord, my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So here's what David says. I have sinned greatly against you, but I want my joy back, and, and I want to be effective in serving you. And so, God, I'm, I'm setting aside my life right now. Consecration, Would You would you give me a clean heart? And give me my joy back and put me back in the game. And for this season, I want to focus solely and exclusively on you. I want to leave my sin and brokenness and the consequences behind. And I want to follow you wherever you lead. A fresh start. And just to be honest this morning, some of you in here need a fresh start. You're not near to God. Your soul is tied up with small things and trivial things and mundane things and immoral things. And God doesn't have your entire life. And perhaps that means that you need to be consecrated to him. Uh, uh, Here's the season for you right now. Start over. You know you can. Because Lamentation says that his mercies are new every morning. Right? So if you're not where you want to be in your Christian life, Today can be a fresh start. A time where you say, I want to be consecrated to you. A fresh start. So we've talked about the definition and the purpose and the practice of consecration, but just last, very quickly, I want to talk about the pattern for consecration. The pattern for consecration. Does Does God give us any help in what that looks like or how we can live a consecrated life? Well, look over in John 17 with me. And write this down in your notes. Jesus models perfect consecration. So if you want to know what a consecrated life looks like, hey, look at Jesus. Follow in his footsteps. He will show you what it looks like. Look in John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them. Jesus talking to his father, talking about his disciples. Set them apart, consecrate them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. So I came to rescue the perishing. Now I'm sending them out to preach the gospel and rescue the perishing. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. He's speaking here of the cross. I'm I went. i I'm going to the cross, he's saying, to give my life. I'm setting them apart my life and surrender so I can die for them. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified or set apart or consecrated in truth. You know what Jesus is saying? I'm giving everything so they can give everything. So they can be set apart. So their life can be yours. Jesus models perfect consecration. Hey, by the way, the only reason nearness to God is available is because of the finished work of Christ, right? You and I could not even talk about consecration. We could not talk about nearness to God had it not been for Jesus. When Jesus cried, it is finished, the veil in the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two from top to bottom. God did that to signify because my son shed his blood, because he paid the price for sin, nearness to me is now available. You can come into my presence through Christ. That's what he's saying. So we couldn't even discuss consecration if Christ had not been consecrated for us. He not set apart his life to death, even death on a cross. And so if you and I want to live a consecrated life, here's what we need to do. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, consecrate our lives. Here's how it says over in Hebrews chapters 12, 1 and 2. These are my life verses. Therefore, having been surrounded or encompassed about by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance... And the sin which so easily entangles. And let us run with endurance the race that is before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author and the finisher of our faith. If you want to live a consecrated life, fix your eyes on him. Lay aside sin, lay aside wrong priorities and fix your eyes on him. He's the pattern of Perfect consecration. And so here's the point. Here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. And I think we can glean this just from looking at Paul's life. Hey, he was a missionary. He was was suffering for Jesus, and yet he saw the need for a special season of consecration. Do you think we might have that need too? Here's the point. Draw near to God. This is a quote from James 4, by the way. Draw near to God. Listen, listen, be amazed by this. And he will draw near to you. Wow. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I I like to say it like this. If we take one step towards God, he will come running for us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The world has yet to see what God can do through a man that is totally yielded to him. Could it be that God wants you to say to him today, By your grace, I will be that man. By your grace, I will be that woman. I want to live a consecrated life.